Welcome back to the Pastor and the Witch podcast recorded in Muncie, Indiana. This is episode 14. I am joined with my smoking hot wife, Jordan Butler, and uh, my dad today. So go ahead. What's your name, dad? My name is Jim. (laughs) Jim Butler. (laughs) How old are you? Born in 48, right? Yep, I will soon be 72. 72. Nice. Yeah, so this is episode 14, right? It is. Okay. Cool. As Jordan and I are sharing mics, or a mic. But no, I know most of you already know, but if you haven't, and this is the first time listening to our podcast, this podcast is um, a little bit different. We have a bit of a broad spectrum. We do talk about differences in belief, um, but also we talk about things like sexual abuse and just traumatic and adverse childhood experiences. So today, we've been trying to get my dad on the episode, or on the podcast for a while, and we want to talk about this kind of like you, man, just like growing up, going to Vietnam, your beliefs, you know, figuring out you're on, I'm not going to say like you're in the you're not dying, but like at the same time, <laughs> this, this, you know, when I when I think of COVID, I think of you, you know, like I'm not worried about me, but I'm like, yeah. I don't want my dad to get it, you know, or like that age group. So, and I, you, you know, you're probably in the last American age group where you're a normal person, you're middle class, and you will get to retire. Good chance of it. Yeah. yeah, there's a good chance of it. You know, I'm the first uh, age group that we made less than our parents. Mm-hmm. You know, but we're not, we're not going to get political on this <laughs> this podcast. I don't know what to say right now. Okay. Well, so you know, obviously, I know all these answers, Dad, but. Tell everybody where you're from. You just want me to start talking. Yeah, yeah start about talking. The deal. Okay, I'm I'm actually was born in uh, Muncie, Indiana, in '48. Um, one set of parents. Uh, one parent was uh, he was raised in Southern Kentucky. Um, the other one, my mother, she was raised in Southeastern Ohio. Her family were um, coal miners for the most part back in those days. Uh, they both have passed. Mom passed uh, back in, um, uh, what was it, 78, and then Dad passed in 2011. Um, but they're still with me quite a bit. It's uh, very, very much so, and uh, um, that kind of a thing. But they decided to try to, the Muncie, Indiana, and all these towns around here, uh, Anderson, Marion, Kokomo, and uh they are along the way. They set up uh, mainly in the automobile world, and uh, so a lot of people found different kind of jobs in these smaller towns heading to Detroit. Some people on the East Coast were heading to Pittsburgh. Others a little bit more towards Chicago. And as immigrations uh, um, moving up north, of course, a lot of them now have scattered everywhere. But that being said. Uh, I went to a, a small school uh, outside of Muncie called Yorktown, uh, Indiana, um, mainly a white school at the time. 
um, mainly um, uh, there was more it really truly in those days you believe it or not it with all the farmers it was really more of a liberal school uh, we didn't use that word then but it was at what the time, was a, a word that you would uh, use? mainly Democrat and Republican if you're talking politics but you had um, uh, you, there's a lot of farm country back in those days more so now than there is and there is a lot now but not like it used to be yeah uh, kids back in those days that were farm boys they could drive tractors at 12 and 14 years old on the, on the city streets, and they did. Well, they wasn't city streets, they were country roads, but they, and they did, and every now and then uh, there would be a report either in Delaware County here or some other place where a tractor had flipped over and killed. You know, and that was not a, an unusual thing. It didn't happen all the time, it did happen, you know, those kinds of things. But anyways, on back to, we'll just bring you up through my life, um, uh, I spent a lot of time in Kentucky, from more so than any place else, uh, with uh, um, except here in Indiana. And then uh, I spent some time in sou southeastern Ohio, a place called Caldwell, Ohio, Noble County, and uh, Cumberland County in Kentucky, with Burksville as a seat. Um, so your your mom's dad, he was a coal miner. Correct. Did he ever have, like, the black lung? Uh, what the report, I know he lost an eye, and I know that... Uh, How did he, he lose an eye? A, a mining accident. Uh. Yeah, I know he lost an eye, and I believe, if I'm correct, he had his back broke. Yeah, and all those, all the boys are mom's brothers, except the youngest one. They all... Were in the mines. They were trying to keep each boy out of the mine, but it wasn't working. And the but the youngest one never had to go into the mines. Of course, those mines have stripped out a long time ago, and uh, that's. Did, did they all? Did any of them die in the mine? Not in working? the mines, okay. but it was not. Uh, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, There's a lot of violence, and Mama talks just like you'd see on TV because you know I never experienced it. They were she. When they go to school in Caldwell, but then if the, the cave-ins and things happen at the mine, yeah, the whistles will go off in the town, and you People know everybody goes down. The mine, yeah, yeah, like. yeah. They were mainly German immigrant that come over. They were uh, they were leaving um, Germany and the uh, the Italians did and so on because they knew this is like in the 1880s, 90s. That something was cooking, and then when World War One come, a lot of those guys said, "Hey, we're out of here." So they shot over here to the United States, and they went into Pennsylvania, West Virginia. They went into southeastern Ohio, and yeah. out here in Indiana, places they knew how to mine, and so that's what the deal was, you know. So, did was there ever like a company store oh. scenario? You know, I uh, my mom didn't talk company store nearly as much. She talked about. The mines itself and the strikes and the violence. Yeah. So, like, what kind of violence would happen? Well, there would be violence, uh, picket line violence. There would be uh, scabs coming in. And uh, I don't know if people today know what a scab is. as a derogatory um, um, remark of what union people would, they bring in these people that would work under wage and they were part of the union. And 
So that happened a lot. It happened every place because, you know, back then there wasn't nearly the protection. Of course, those unions are pretty much busted now. Yeah, I was talking about Jordan and I. That strike that happened at Borg Warner, was it 88? Um, the big one was that, 90? 89. 89. 89 so strike. how long was that? That was the second longest strike at Borg Warner. Um, that went on for about, I can't remember now, I want to say three months. And it was only over health care. There was no issues of work uh, rules or wages. It was only over health care. And that's when we first heard, I was on the insurance committee, and that was when we first heard of the term pre-existing condition. We, and so what are you yeah, guys well, talking about? What a joke of a Yeah, that's, term. and yeah. so they were going to try to ship. That's why that strike went so long. That strike did get violent for well, I, what? I the times were because you know we were at I went over we her and I both went over to Nick's mom's house and so I was telling her about just some stories with Nick like growing up and I remember at that strike one somebody shot a rifle through the guard on the side of the building the guard tower on the side of the building and they they shot through some people's houses oh really oh yeah oh yeah yeah. and um, you know we um, you know, you had splits in the union just like you did in the company. And uh, there was a small group of people that started doing that. And um, that, that don't work. So, you know. and, I, and I imagine those were ignorant people? Um, or were they just... So, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, some were. Some had, um, this had a different point of view. So, and, uh, well, I, well, I was telling her the story because you know Nick's mom Sue, she worked for the company, so mm-hmm. she had to cross the picket she line. She's company personnel, and they knew that Nick went to the Y for daycare. He's a little guy, you know, and they jumped on her car and told her, "We know where your son goes to daycare, and we're going to put an axe through his head." Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, gosh! Yeah, but I was telling her the story. But it's just so weird, and that's why I ask about violence, like with your mom's side of the family in the mine, because the mine is something that has gone down in culture that is almost different than any other profession. So yeah. you you could say like you know there's a an old crow medicine show they have a, a it's a band but they have a they're from Tennessee but they have a song called methamphetamine and. They're talking in one lyric. They say you can either call up the mine or the Kentucky National Guard, and because there's you know, and it's like when they say that, you know exactly what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. But there's in the mine almost kind of gives this like hopeless scenario and death yeah. because I, I what is it? There's three or four things that can happen when you're mining. You could be electrocuted. There could be a cave in. There can be an explosion. Or you could just basically suffocate because there's poisonous gas in the air. So there's like four things. And, you know, I've read like sociological reports where living and working in close proximity to death makes you look differently at death, but it also forces you to live differently. And I think that's why a lot of those people lived hard, especially with alcohol and mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. like that. I, I know um, there were a few years ago. Uh, your mother and I, we took a vacation out west, or not west, but out the east, and we uh, were going to Virginia, 
people mess around out there, and we did, and it was fine. But we had to, we stayed over in West Virginia, and I forgot all your mom's suitcase. <laughs> it's sitting back on the driveway. Oh, I bet she was. I bet now, she never well, said a word about she, it the whole time, did she? Uh, <laughs> no, you know, once she did, she goes, she holds her head and she goes, Jim, that's where all my clothes are. So we go to the Walmart and she's busy doing her deal. And I'm just standing watching people. And we're in, we're in coal mining country. And we're in West Virginia. I can't remember where we're at. And I'm watching, uh, it was on a Friday night for a lot of people. And it could have been my uh, perception, but I don't believe it was. I could read people pretty well by this time. And they were all the people, or money other people, including the youth. You didn't see a lot of people laughing. You didn't see a lot of people smiling. They, now, they were busy. It's Friday night. They're getting their, their groceries and so on and so on. But you could tell that this was a different kind of American. And uh, you you had to empathize with him, and uh, and so on. Now, Dad, on the other side of that, you know, he was a very strong union leader in the UAW. As a matter of fact, he worked on the international staff and didn't like it. Um, and he'd tell you a lot of stories and a lot of things about Ruther and and uh, um, some of those. Well, uh, yeah, I told Jordan the story where you and I walked in the Bracken Library that one time. Oh, yeah. yeah. And had that. Presentation or a display on organized labor. Yeah, they have in those. The they do those themes for three or four months. They did labor in, in uh, Muncie, Indiana. So, did he ever tell you the story though about going in and helping a union set up in Newcastle and there was a gunfight? Um, well, yeah, yeah, and that made back in those days that was big. It, it was a perfect circle. Yeah, that's yeah, what it was. Perfect, perfect circle. circle was Newcastle. What did they Hagerstown. make? Um, it was an automobile part, but they were non-union. And there was a, the union organizers did not try to just go out and organize a union. They wanted those people that were non-union to want it. And they were half farmer, half not. And it was kind of 50-50. So the international, oh, they had supported, but they said, you know, they, these guys aren't ready yet. Well, it turned violent. And what happened, uh, the, the shooting, at least on what Dad said, started from the inside of the plant. And so, you know, a lot of these guys are World War II Korean vets, and not all of them. They go home and get their rifles, and they shoot them, and they're firing. And then the state troopers come out. And the troopers come out, but they just didn't have enough. So they sent the guard out. Oh. Yeah, I believe, I, I think I'm right on that. I might be wrong, but I know the troopers for sure, but I know they didn't have enough personnel. And, um, there, I know there was hearings and in Washington on it, and I know John Kennedy was a senator from Massachusetts, and McClellan, I think McClellan may have been from the South. Anyways, I used to know. I don't know uh, the names now. But Dad was a witness to that. And, uh, of course, there's all kinds of witnesses and so on. Yeah, yeah and, no, it, it's just interesting how things especially around here, have changed. But, so, like, do you remember, like, hanging out? Like, what was it like hanging out with your grandpa and that whole family that were just in the coal mine? Well, like, I never met him. You never met no, him? No, he died in uh, a month after I was born. 
and I never met him. Uh, of course, my grandmother, your great great grandmother, she was a um, she's a feisty woman, small. Um, and you say feisty, like I mean, what was she like? I like, mean feisty. Took no yeah. shit, kind of feisty. She took no shit. Yeah. And uh, she's a strong Christian. And if some of the grandkids, they tell these stories. I know they throw fits. But she just sat down and looked. She could be in, by this time, they're living right outside of Caldwell. You know, she, and by, they tell stories how they just, she just sat down and let them throw their fits, crying. I said, well, you, are you ready? Yeah. You know? <laughs> And if they weren't, she just said, you know, she'd sit on park bench or something, you know, and so on. But, uh, yeah, she died of a uh, heart attack. She wasn't not very old, 62 maybe. Was she uh, redheaded? Because that you majority know, were in that family, yeah, right? Yeah, there was a lot of redhead and blonde. They were all redhead and blonde, um, blue-eyed. Uh, I When I seen her grand, uh, she probably was blue-eyed, but I never, her hair was white. I can remember gray. I can never remember the red. And what was interesting about her, you know, my dad's was a butler, of course. Yeah. But her maiden name was Butler. Yeah. There's three sisters, and uh, I never did. I never did follow up on that, you know, and so forth. I kind of wish I just they never know. I don't yeah. think so. But that was interesting, you know. So. So. I know your beliefs, and. I think that we we do have a lot of shared beliefs in a lot of areas, but the fact that you brought up, you know, you know that, and we've had this talk a million times where I don't call myself a Christian, but definitely a follower of Jesus. And um, but you, the fact that you just said like she was a, a Christian woman or a strong Christian woman, what does that look like from your perspective as a little boy in you know the nineteen fifties? Yeah, uh, back then. Yeah. Well. Maybe it might be best to start up now and go back. <laughs> uh, uh, we've uh, we politicalized that name or yeah. that, that uh, yeah that name Christianity, and so uh, we could go on a lot of these books written on it, you know. But in, to keep it short and sweet, a lot of things that the evangelical Christian has said, I I, I don't believe. I don't. I don't see if they use scripture. I don't interpret that way. And then later, there's some evangelicals that, you know, like Woody Noblin, you know, very strong evangelical in these states. You know, I mean, he's a Trump supporter and all comes out and he says, whoa, you know, this can't be. And that was, you know, he puts his stuff out on, in the editorial page. Yeah. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah. And, uh, about Trump. And that was only within uh, a year. Yeah. You know, and so... But as you as you as you go back, as you shoot back, most of the churches. Well, I'm not an expert on, but they they were full. There's always people you could drive by them. You know, there's one in my neighborhood. They were always full. Full might mean 20 people. Full might mean 400 people. You know, but uh, I think as uh, ideas become uh, in say television and then. You know, that technology and it shifted to what we're doing today. There's so many ideas out there that the idea of, of a believer in Christ is to study his word. Now, we can debate what they mean. We can debate by the time we got the, it got to here how much uh, the word changed. 
You know, some of it would have been just naturally changed. Some would have been an agenda. Well, um, and, I believe. And, all right, so it's funny because that's like total blasphemy and heresy mm-hmm. when you say that. And I believe that too, like to think that the Bible has been translated and has been in human hands for I don't know how many years, but was it, even if let's just pick a number and say 100 years, even though we know it's longer than that. Within 100 years, there's going to be a lot of changes made to it. And it's funny you bring up Woody Noblet because he talks about that in that mm-hmm. book that he, you know, they yeah. put together and, and with Woody his photography. About that. I, I, was a, I go to a Bible study with him in there every Tuesday morning, and this is before he died. And uh, he, he made, you know, Woody made, he's pretty sharp, smart guy. Yeah. And, you know, and, uh, you know, he had some age to him. And uh, he said, I'm trying desperately to hold on, but I still believe in Christ. I still believe in, in, in that. And uh, so I think when you read the word, I know for me, uh, there's, there's parts of those words that, how can you say, they're no good, you know. Yeah. Treat others the way you want to be treated. I mean, there's things like that. Now there's other ones that you can debate and argue, and, and who, baptism, you know, yeah. you can get into that thing, you know, it's like, do you baptize this way? That I've heard some real arguments. Just things like that are useless, uh, yeah. for me. Anyway. For me, too. Now, some aren't. Some people know there's only one way, and it's either baptized by submersion or in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One guy said it's got to be in Jesus Christ, we used to talk about, you know. And some don't even baptize, you know. Yeah. So, you know, you could just go on. Go ahead, Jordan. Well, when you said that, I just remember when I was young. I forget who or where or what church it was, but I remember they said, you have to end your prayer in Jesus' name or he can't hear you, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another, like, aspect of this religious application applied to, you know, Mm -hmm. the methodical stuff. Yeah, basically, they they said your prayers wouldn't be answered if you didn't end your prayer correctly. Yeah, you know, they used to talk about, and I did study a little bit on purgatory, and uh, you, we've all heard stories about uh, you got to give a little bit more money. Because, I mean, I've heard this uh, where one priest said, you still, <laughs> you still got a leg. <laughs> but Wait, what'd he, he say? He's, he's telling the, the guy have a little bit more money because he's still got a leg. Down in purgatory. Oh, he's got yeah, a leg I, I mean, you know, you could go on, 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 you know. Yeah. But if you keep it simple, it's yeah. powerful. It really is. It really is. I, I, I agree, but so I want to back up a little bit. So you joined the National Guard, right, when you were yeah. 18? Yeah. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, like, fly through this aspect, but you went AWOL because you knew you were going to be Drafted. No, no, okay. no, no. That was that was another. We didn't mention that was another guy. <laughs> yeah, he did. Took him two years and they got him. Oh really? He didn't go to Vietnam. But he ended up in the hunt first because we were all paratroopers in that guard. Yeah. Yeah. He ended up down Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And yeah. But no, no. I went in and said, um, I want to go active. So it took a while, not long. I mean, they tried to talk me out of it. I said. Actually, that unit, that was an interesting unit. When the unit I was in, it was all young men. The Greenfield unit was old men in the National Guard. The Greenfield unit got activated. 
they transferred all their old men down to Muncie and all the young men into uh, Greenfield, and they, they went to Vietnam. And they were an outstanding outfit, that's what I understand. I had a good friend or two that was in that. But anyways, I said activate me. I ended up with uh, in Germany for about six months uh, with the uh, uh, ninth or 8th Infantry Division, was it 8th or 9th? As an airborne outfit out of Mites. Some people called it Mints. So that's the, the name of the city, Mints? I, we pronounced it Mites, but uh, some guys that spoke German says they pronounced it a little bit different. Yeah. So that would have been like what, 68? Six, 68. 68. So you're talking, you know, 1945. So we're looking not long after the Nazis and, uh -huh. you know, rebuilding Europe. Was there still like that? stain of national socialism on the people of Germany when you were there? Well, it's for sure, because, you know, we were in an area that you couldn't just walk around. We were we were close to an Air Force base. We were always doing training, uh, jumping, all that kind of stuff. And so when you did get free time, you know, and I did a little bit, not much. I didn't get eight-hour passes, things like that, you know, uh, four-hour passes. Uh, but you had, there's no doubt, because all the World War II generation, you, you looked around, and you, and I was, I didn't know a lot about things then, but you still had this feeling of the, of Hitler and the Nazis and crap, you know. Yeah. And then, uh, but I don't recall, well, yeah, there were some incidents I may have seen. Uh, they would yell out. You could always tell we were military because of our haircuts, you know. You know, we were just white so like, walls. And were, the, were the German people nice to you, or, like, were the, the young German men, like, was there a chip on the shoulder? Some, some, some of them were chipped on the shoulder. Now, th they would not let, in those days, the German army, there's some come to our barracks to stay for a while, and then back and we got to know them. They were not to look strike, you know, like military. They had longer hair, and they had uniforms, but, but they had these police, and these police, because I was told to don't get arrested, because the United States government can't do anything with them. They were, they had uh, police on big horses, and they wore these green uniforms with a belt across. They had two German shepherds. Their boots come up to about their knees, they were spit shine, and they were everywhere out there. That's the only thing I seen that you go, you know, this, you don't want to mess with this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it could get turned into something. So, and then you did, did you do winter training in the Alps? Uh, it's for, for sure mountains, and I always thought it was the Alps, but it might have been uh, just some mountains in Germany. They were mountains, though, okay. man. They, maybe they were foothill of the Alps, or maybe they were Alps. Uh, I, but I, I tell you, it's it unbelievable. Yeah, I did yeah. train up there. Yeah, they're... Those mountains are pretty. I mean, they're like, like you see in, like, yeah. they're bigger than, you know. Well, I've never seen the real, like, the Rockies here, Canadian, yeah. or where I've never been out there. But, yeah, those were, those were quite something. And uh, We drove through the Rockies in the middle of a snowstorm. I was driving a trailer, 14-foot trailer, and the brakes went out. And it was at nighttime. <laughs> And I was so scared. And I'll tell you what, it was like 
some of the easiest driving because you couldn't see how high up you were because it was all dark, yeah. you know. And the snow, you could see like about three feet in front of you. So you creeped along at like 20 miles an hour. But that's besides the point. So you were a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne. Correct. Where did you do jump school at? Fort Benning, Georgia. And how many times did you have to jump a month? Well, you um, you and you had to qualify you jump five. And if you broke anything and there's guys that did, you were done. So Hendricks like, went through that jump school, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He was with the 101st at some point. Yeah. Yeah, you see pictures of them, you know, through yeah, the years. Yeah, Billy Cox. Yeah. Jimmy Hendricks and Billy Cox, the bass player for Band of Gypsies. And supposedly, you know, Hendricks said he broke his ankle, and they were jamming. And I think this is in 66. But interesting side note about Hendricks. He was the, the only performer at Woodstock that agreed with the Vietnam War. Or was he? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And um, so he still had some of the military in him. But there is this, it's not, you know, it can't be confirmed because everybody really involved is dead. But there was this, he said that he got discharged because he broke his ankle in jump school. Right? Um, and autopsy, there is no scar from where he would have broke the bone. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that he told him he was gay. So he get kicked out, you know, and then because he knew what he wanted to do and he knew he was going to Vietnam. Obviously, I think he was better served playing music than <laughs> than. But so that leads me to my next question, though. So in jump school, what was like a average day like and like how long was jump school? Jump school. I, uh, now my numbers are a little bit faded, but these would be real close. They got you up at oh what we called old 400 at 4 a.m. And you immediately started doing things like making your bed and chowing down. And then your training went for, you had three weeks of training. Um, they modified that to two because we still went on the 250-foot towers. But the first week was called ground week, and it was the weed out. And, man, they did weed out too because you're running all the time. You did throughout those three weeks somewhere between, uh, I think the word was 500 to 800 push-ups a day or was 800 to 1,000. But you, it was always 10 at a time, and you were just always dropping, always dropping. And uh, I, first you think that can't be, but trust me, it can be because there's reasons they want that push-up. And they used to, as we transferred out our ground week into – it was a 20-foot tower and a 250-foot tower. I can't remember what that second week was. But you started wearing these shoes, and so at first you'd drop and do push-ups, and they'd let you do them. They'd say, you don't do, <laughs> you don't do push-ups with a shoot on. You know, it's just a half shoot you're getting used to. You had to do squats, you know. So they really were. And then they had a um, – they had a thing where they'd say hit it and by this time you'd go into your when you would actually exit the airplane you'd have this uh you'd hit a certain way and you'd count one two three four and you'd look up quickly but you your hand went through an automatic reserve 
fold, and that's why. So you did you did that a lot. So you know you're you fall back on your training, you know, quite a bit and so forth. And like a military jump is a lot different than a skydive jump because oh yeah, it, oh, it's yeah. like what is it a thousand feet? Like you're really dropping. Well, I think a true military jump, like in D Day and place like that, somewhere between three to five hundred feet. I mean, you are just up and down. Up and down. Uh, yeah. I, the lowest I ever jumped was eight hundred. What's the highest you ever jumped? Fifteen hundred. How many jumps do you think you have? Nine or eleven. Okay. Yeah, there's. Uh, I was in an area where there's a lot of guys that jump forty, fifty. Well, some of the guys that stayed in jump forever. You know. In jump school, like, how many people made it to jump school? But then, how many people made it out? Like. Boy, there was a, a that first week, Jordan. There was lots of you were just running, and we're I'm we're talking about August down in Georgia. You know, and back in those days, you ran in combat boots and fatigue pants. Now, you took your shirt off. And their idea was just to weed you out that first week. And they did. And what I mean by that is they, you finally, I forget the distance of the runs, but the one in the final one, they would have these first aid guys in Jeeps following. And then they, the guys are passing out. And uh, they're done, you know. And uh, uh, I'm going to say, because I, you know, I wasn't aware of things like you know back then, being 18, 19 years old. I'd say 20 percent, 10 to 30 percent. Let's go like that. There was a lot. Of course, when you go down there in August and September or July, you know. And back in those days, they they'd take a break every hour. It's kind of funny what they, you know what, you, you drink salt water. Yeah, salt water. Why would you drink salt water? And they, back in those days, it help you sweat, what they said, but it's probably. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was going to say that dehydrate you. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you would go to a, a shower outside and, uh, what do you call it, um, sawdust. So when you roll through, not only you try to keep out the sawdust because you're sweating like crazy and you're wet because you roll from, I don't know, there's probably eight or nine showers there and they're rolling two, two different, you know, so you're using your arms and stuff, but you roll through that every hour and you drink salt water. Oh, my God. That's terrible. <laughs> so, so. No wonder we were mean. When, yeah. <laughs> When you went from jump school, did you go straight to Vietnam? No. Where? where uh, I, I was still in the guard then. Come back out, did a deal. I jumped a few times in the guard out shoppers. Um, then I, that's why I told them to activate me, and they said I ended up at um, Fort Leonard Wood, and I went to Germany. Where's Fort Leonard Wood? Missouri, Missouri. Not too far from St. Louis. And then... I volunteered in Germany. I went to Vietnam and uh, went to 101st Airborne Division. So, what year? You landed in Vietnam in 69? Six, yes, 69. So, you were there in 69 and 70, right? Yeah, I got out of there in February or March of 70. Okay. I remember. I think it's March. It's March 70. Your 21st birthday. This is you, right? Yeah. You you're on guard in a rainstorm in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was a, it was a monsoon. Uh, unfortunately, it seemed like every place that we went, we we would follow monsoon, 
I spent most of my time in the rain over there. So, Not all, but most of my time. What, like when you got to Vietnam, what was like one of the biggest things that you noticed that you're not in America? Well, there are several things, but one that, well, it was confusing from the get-go. We were trained with BC wearing black, which they were. But when we end in Cameron Bay, and I mean, you can't breathe because nobody's used to this kind of heat, you know. What's that heat like? It's not like a, like the humidity is different than like say Georgia or Texas. You, you know, at the time, it's just it's like right in your face, it, and see it drop. It would go from. I would probably experience most of the time somewhere between ninety five and one hundred and fifteen. I think there's some guys that was probably in certain areas of Maine got the hundred thirty and some that triple canopy. But it'd be cold. Well, I mean, bad. It dropped down to 60 degrees, 70 degrees at night. So when I went over there, I weighed uh, maybe 185 pounds. And when I left, I weighed 123 pounds. You, so you weighed 185 going into country and then heading back. You were at how much? 123. 123 pounds. And, uh, and then I had... Um, I must have got bit by something over there because I had all these styes in my I, eye. I told Jordan about this. Yeah, there was like eight or nine in one and four or five in another, and the doctors here were trying to, and they finally did get it cleaned up, but it was it was something, and then I I couldn't eat here. I think I went down to 117 pounds. They about ready to put me in the hospital. I just all bone, you know, no energy, stupid. So, because I do want to talk about when you came back, just like the mindset, but going back when you first got into Vietnam and when you first landed in the country, what do they do to transition you before you go into the bush? Right? Yeah, yeah. What we did, uh, we sh- they had us on doing details of filling sandbags when you're standing out there. And they were telling you, hey, just take it easy. They're just trying to get you out there. And then over the course of a week or two, I can't remember, you actually end up marching doing a little running, doing a little this, a little that, and so forth. And uh, then I was what was called 11 Charlie. Uh, the infantry had 11 Bravo, 11 Charlie, and I think there's 11 Hotel. Um, they, they were a weapons platoon, and I, I was trained on 81 mortars and four deuce mortars. Um, seen action. Um, uh, did walk point on a few cases where we had to do ambushes. Um, so I was well-trained in uh, mortars. In, I actually did my training earlier in basic on M14. We carried M14s in Germany. But in Vietnam, we had to retrain on M16s. So is the M14 heavier than the M16? Yeah, yeah. Is the capacity the same? Army. Is the capacity the same that you're using um, on your magazines? Man, I, I can't remember. Um the M14, you could you could shift it to a full automatic, but I never had to do that. So I'm, I'm thinking of the clip that went in our magazine. There's probably I don't know, 12, 14 rounds. I can't remember. Back then, like say, if you did shift it to full automatic, was it like three round burst or was it just well, straight? Well, yeah, the 16s they were like I think 25. They weren't 22. I think it was 25 caliber. And they didn't, the 14 took pretty good size, well, for a strong man, 
would keep that down because the, the rifle would go up. They'd go and pull all that. 16s wouldn't do that. Uh, 16s, uh, there were some, the speed of the bullet and then the speed of the clip. Yeah, they had a lot of trouble and, uh, with the 16. There were some guys that died that jammed up on them. Uh, I did study that a little bit. Mine never did. But mine happened after Congress or evidently they had investigations and, and so on. But I was trained on the 16. Uh, I knew how far and, and break down the M60. Believe it or not, we actually had a 50 caliber we never used, but somehow supply got it, and I knew how to break that thing down. But we'd test it, and, uh, uh, but it's pretty much I was with mortars and 16s. So, and grenade, and yeah, grenades and rounds. But how many grenades did you carry? Several. Then what? When you would throw them in action, how long would it take to hear that explosion? Well, as as a rule, you know, I can't remember the actual time. I think it's three or four seconds. Or four I, seconds. I just can't remember. Um, they didn't look like the old pineapple you'd see pictures in World War Two. They were more same shape, same basic way. At least in those days, because you know we're talking about I'm talking about 50 years ago. Who knows what they do now? Um, but I, I believe the grenades I've seen in recent years is the same one. It's a smooth. Where the pineapple is known for, all of a sudden it only breaking two pieces. What they said anyways, instead of fragging out. Now we use claymore mines. Uh, we use them quite a bit. So did you ever see like any, because I was thinking of like some of the VC tactics of like punji sticks and things no, like that. No, we were trained about it, but no. Um, knew a lot about them. And uh, that's, I see my jungle boot uh, come with uh, steel in the bottom. Oh. The early, well, the first guys that went over there was wearing leather. Well, that wasn't flying. And they come up with the canvas. And then a lot of these guys were, they defecate the, the VC or whoever defecate on those punji sticks. Of course, they go right up through your foot throughout. Of course, they put bacteria in there. And I've read stuff on that, but no, I never experienced that. I remember one time you told me about how on your, your M16, you would basically like, I don't know if you rubber band it or you would connect yeah, magazines yeah. so you could flip it fast. Yeah, you you turn the magazines upside, you know, like uh, the uh, the Russian and Chinese uh, uh, AKs. You know, they had the banana clip. Well, what mainly Americans started doing, we would uh, take the clip and rubber band it, or something where you could pull it out, and turn it up. How many were in that? How many, like what was the capacity? Well, I can't remember numbers, but I know that you couldn't put you. You couldn't put, let's say there were 20 in there. There might have been 18. We didn't put the full load. We kept one out because it would jam. I know in my time it would jam. And so we, we I remember that, but I'm not sure about the 20 or 18 or whatever. And most of the enemy, were they using AK-47s? Yeah. Did you? I'm sure they used other stuff, but yeah, yeah. So did you ever like come across like what was it like walking through the bush and coming across a small village and seeing children play and just well it never was around villages um well i mean i was in some villages but they were they were bigger 
I guess you'd call them towns. I, now, I'd see villages from the shoppers, but we would never. I what didn't. was it like riding in the chopper? Like you see in the movies, like your yeah. the sides are open? Yeah. Were you buckled in? It didn't have to be. Uh, now, some guys would, but the chopper has some kind of, those choppers had some kind of, cent- I'm sure they do now, centrifugal force. So you set in it and then maneuver. You, you could turn it like that. You, it just kept you close to the, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you set on the deal. I, you know, I always think of, do you remember that scene? I know you do because we've talked about it. And uh, is it Apocalypse Now? Yeah. Where he said, you know, he said, if they run, they're a VC. And if they don't run, they're a well-trained VC. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's so terrible because Well, there's probably a lot of truth to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you sitting in the helicopter reminds me of that ride at the fair. Like where you you're not buckled in, like you just stand up, and it's that big wheel and it spins and yeah. you like basically and I'm like you don't move because of that force. Yeah, but like force. you're not buckled in, nothing. You yeah. have like a chain. That's it. <laughs> yeah, because I always wondered like because you see in movies, I'm like, gosh, that would be terrifying because those dudes are just like sitting with their legs hanging out, you know. And yeah, it would. Like yeah, and, and uh, yeah, they the first that's the first place I ever rode in choppers. Well, take that back. I, when I was in the guard, I was telling you, I took the, uh, we jumped twice in one day out of the choppers, and but they had wheels on them. I did ride in that, but we did a totally different exit uh, out of there. So then the choppers that you rode on in Vietnam, in, yeah, they, they had 50 calibers on the side? Had what? 50 caliber. No, uh, they I believe they were 60s. There's uh, door gunners. They had shield. Well, the ones we were, they had shield, but I believe they had 60s up there. What were what were those people like that operated those guns? Were they a different breed? Those chopper guys were all different. Because I, I, you know, yeah, I've heard you talk about were, like tunnel rats and how tunnel rats were a different I breed. I, I knew two. I knew two guys. There was a one, maybe I knew so one for sure. Basically, we should probably explain though what a tunnel rat is. Yeah. You know what a tunnel rat is, but I don't listen to. Okay, what uh, tunnel rats, uh, and this is what I was, we were told, I did read about it. You go down into, uh, the VC had learned, and the Vietnamese had learned years and years before, they, they built a lot of tunnels. And so, they, and some, they'd open up, they, they'd evidently have hospitals down there, they would have, just, you know, were bombing everywhere, and, and uh, the French were in there, you know, for uh, and so forth, and uh, so they did a lot of things underground. And they'd send Americans down as a volunteer. They couldn't. I don't think they could do it. I couldn't do it. I had the claustrophobia. There's no way. But they would go down, and they would see what they could find down there. And sometimes, you know, they they found uh, the things I have read. They would have have hand to hand combat fighting. Other times, snakes would bite them. Or something would be there, you know. Uh, I remember you telling me a time like they would, and and this happened to you because like the most common thing for like a young GI to do is when they would see light, they would fire upon it. But you would look around yeah. and they would put like lights or fire yeah. on sticks, and they'd be down in the tunnels and they'd put it up, so you would shoot to give up your position. But you'd yeah. look around and it was like. There's lights everywhere. We were moving. Our outfit was moving up toward the A-Shaw, and I never seen the A-Shaw. That's where it was going. We were a reserve battalion down around Fayette, 
And we were moving north, and we were up there. The further north we went, the, that's there, the Ashaw Valley. Yeah. Okay. And the further north we went is a lot more NBA. You're seeing action during the day. Which I is would. the North Vietnamese Army. Correct. Yeah. They and they were an army, and they were good, and so forth. And um, you should probably, though, sorry to interrupt you, explain what the VC is, though, because okay. believe it or not, a lot of Americans don't know what VC okay. NBA. I don't. Okay. The VC had started out in the 50s called the Viet Minh, and they were uh, taking on the French and actually the Japanese to a degree. Um, there's a whole story about that. And uh, there, uh, when Ho Chi Minh uh, they actually used some of our um, words of Thomas Jefferson and so on, um, I'm giving you a real quick history. Uh, the OSS, uh, they had fl uh, dropped uh, Americans in there, trained them how to fight the, the Japanese and all this kind of stuff. Then you go on up and things change and, and uh, the Vietnamese communists, so we called them VC or Charlie, Victor Charles, Mr. Charles, you know. But then on up is the NVA with North Vietnamese Army. And where you were talking about on the lights, I forget, I think we were around the Quinyon area out in that AO, and we were pulling ambush. We were stationed for a little bit at the 173rd Airborne. We were passing through. That's why I know they were going to the A-Show. They just knew, knew we were there. And uh, because we were getting up there where we hadn't seen a lot of mil uh, fighter jets where we had been operating, I'd just seen some, of course, more choppers. But, man, you're seeing this stuff during the day, and you're seeing things. You're getting hit during the day, and then, you know, the action's really picking up. Well, we pulled the ambush, and then and we discovered later, I'll tell you the story, but that we were sitting on all kinds of tunnels. We're sitting on all kinds of stuff. Didn't know it. I'm going to tell you how I found out something wasn't right. But all of a sudden, this light comes up at night, and it's it don't have any smoothness to it. It's like probably somebody's gotten it on a pole. And, a, and a, I remember a kid from uh, Texas, he said, uh, you want to shoot at that? I said, no, man, just leave it alone. You know, if you do that, we, who knows what it's going to lead to, you know. And um, so, yeah, but back, we come back in, and where we were, where we were on this far base, and they, they had some, that's where we were stationed at 173rd, or moving through them. And it had these permanent places, buildings, but we <laughs> we have a bunch of sea rations, a bunch of LERP, long-range patrol, dehydrated food. We had a bunch of stuff that we're stalking down there. And, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's, things, it's during the day. Things go on. Everybody goes to the, the berm or to the, the. We come back and all of this stuff is gone. And we're going, what the hell happened here? Well, we put some more stuff out then and we set some trip flares. That same thing happened. Of course, we're new in this place. We don't know. Or, you know, is something actually happening out there? So you have to leave to go out there. 
all that stuff is going. So we we go over. I was a sergeant, and we go over. There's Vietnamese there, and why we go right down into their stuff. And of course, nobody can speak English, but you could just you knew. This just didn't happen. People are still in this, be like the size of this, more than the size of this room with supplies, you know, with foods. So, you know, and that's when, then later we go out there on ambush, and that's when all that stuff, and, and then later I read, I read a lot on Vietnam, and you go, you know, these guys were like ants. They, they really were, and they were engineers. I mean, uh, and ants, not, you know, if you think what an ant can do, yeah. that's what they could do. So, did you ever have uh, almost like a when you were in Vietnam? Was it common to question why you were there amongst GIs? Well, there was yeah, there was a there. I always thought at not the time I didn't, but uh, later as I read, there was I think three different Americans, maybe four in Vietnam. The first ones were were very gung ho, and the very, and the last ones were. Who's going to be the last guy to die in Vietnam? You know, and these were real questions. During my time was uh, actually debates. You know, we'd be sitting around talking. We talked about a lot of stuff, and you get talking about this. And 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 I knew, you know, you're always battling. I've heard this, but it's the truth. I I I did it myself. Are we the English? Are we the English doing this? I knew. I remember I said to you early in this interview that. Uh, we landed in Cameron Bay, and everybody was told, well, yeah. a lot of Vietnamese are wearing black. And you're going... Which, which is a com... That's, like, essentially, because the Khmer Rouge wore all black, too. Yeah. Remember, they had the checkered banner, but that's their farming... Yeah, like, yeah. And a lot of people clothes. don't realize this, because you wear black, you see in black, you sweat, and you stay cool. You better first, you yep. know. But anyways, it, it started getting screwy. And then... I got orders, so I go down to this place to wait on some kind of airplanes. They're smaller airplanes, and I'm going to end up going to 101st. And we're all waiting, and where we wait at, there's probably 300 Vietnamese. They're just people, civilians, and there's a lot of military. And I'm watching, I'm looking around, I think about anything. They're all different, you know. And then I see this guy. He must have been um, American. He's wearing these tiger uh, fatigues, which is probably a long-range patrol or something. And I'm watching him. And what he's doing, he is watching them. <laughs> and I mean watching them. I mean seeing them, you know. And it's funny how you connect on a guy's eyes, you know. Yeah. So, man, I get to watch them. And then I get to seeing them. And then... After about a month, I figure something's wrong here in my head, you know. This is not, just something's not right here. But you can't, you're 18 years old, you're told to do and you do. But I do remember they, every now and then in the military, they would send in these people to their JAG, I think it's called, Judiciary something, something. And so they come in and ask you questions. And um, they walk through and they say, they go to each guy, do you have a question about anything? Do you want to make a statement? And finally, I come to me, man, I said, I got a statement. And I mean, these guys thought I'm going to just crank on the company. 
And I mean, the company commander there, he was shitless, you know, like over the hill. I said, um, I, I can't remember my actual words, but I said, I don't like this war. I don't think this war is, is right. And of course, they shipped all that, saying, well, yeah, but how about your company? I said, oh, the company's pretty good. And they were, you know. They were, they were, I said, they're pretty good. I had no problems with it. Can't, he didn't use those words, that kind of word. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, to your thoughts, uh, it has become questionable. I remember asking you a question of one time what it – because – and I've talked about this on the podcast before, I think, how you and your dad, so my grandpappy, who was in – you know, D-Day and World War II and Battle of Bulge and then also in Korea mm-hmm. was different than most people that you come across. And, of course, not the last two years of his life because, you remember, he wouldn't talk about the war. No, yeah, he got to worry. This thing won't talk about yeah. it. Yeah. So but for 30 years, yeah. though, it was any question was not inappropriate. I mean, you think about, like, mm-hmm. asking what does a dead body smell like. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, that would be a very disrespectful thing to mm-hmm. ask. For Grandpappy, and even you, it was, you know, like, what Grandpappy would talk about, like, watching the life leave people's eyes, yeah. you know. And, and I remember asking you, what was it like the first time you saw a dead body? And it was a, it was a, Viet, it was a Vietnamese, correct? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, just uh, I remember Dad talking about uh, a lot of things. Um, um, the, the things he experienced, and we would he could he had the World War Two thinking that what we should be doing in Vietnam is bomb the piss out of them and then go in and clean them out and do it. Well, yeah, we could probably do that for a while. I'm reading a book, Daniel Ellsberg's uh, the Pentagon Papers, about halfway through it, and, and you see in his evolution from a cold warrior to this is not cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, he makes uh, he started making he be, he come become very respectful. He was a Marine. He didn't fight in Vietnam, but he'd been an infantryman in the Marine, a company commander, very smart guy, and. Uh, the whole story back him, but what what the what grabbed me just in the recent days I read that someone I think it's Kissinger was asking him, the guy worked for Kissinger, and, and about well they they could see in his writing that he was he was still drawing the line he wouldn't slam it but but what he said was well I don't see any way to win he said you can put a million Americans in there you can put two million Americans in there long as they're there, yeah. How are you going to support that? Yeah. Yeah, it's a no-win. We were in their country. It'd be like someone coming into Mexico down there or Canada. I mean, you know, you, what are the possibilities? Are you going to do, you going to deal with China? I mean, that's their, that's theirs. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, but on the other side, uh, they, there were some reasons why they thought that it would be a, they were still thinking, you know, the guys that run that World War, World War II captains and lieutenants, they were young men in World War II. And they had this thinking that when, remember how when Hitler come over, everybody fell. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, they're thinking that the communists, that Southeast Asia is going to fall. And there might be some truth to that to a degree, but they're not Europeans. And so there was a lot of uh, 
mindsets and tactical things and strategic things that was fit more for a traditional war. Now, we were adjusting, we were adapting. Americans are very good soldiers, very good fighters. Um, they, they, they did a good job, what they were told to do. Uh, sure, there's always a bad element, there's a bad element and everything, but the Americans, the ones I was around, I thought was pretty good. I, I trusted them. So what did you, like, how did you rationalize, though, in your mind what you were seeing? I'm still rationalizing. <laughs> so, are, well, are there any parts of the war that still bother you in the sense of that well, you, it, you it, guard yourself of going there in your mind? Um, well, as you get older, you kind of, kind of lose, uh, or, or I, I try to tell the same story because you know I'm, I'm losing some of my long-term memory, so I read a lot. And it, reading's great, but you also, when you read a lot, you can get things mixed up through the years you get older. Um, so there is things, the two best shots I, I took in Vietnam was I didn't shoot. We were meeting, trying to link up with 173rd. No, they were, they were that was the hunt first. And they're coming through and I'm on point and we know they're coming, but we don't know where, and it's just getting dark. And the, the guy, what happened, the radio quit working. And they're trying to get back in the base before it gets dark. And um, the guy got his helmet turned around backwards. And this is a new place that I haven't been up here. We're, this is where we're heading north. And I had him, man, I had him. And all of a sudden the guy goes, whoa, baby, whoa. Mm -hmm. and, and then that was a little girl. Um, so, but that guy, he was just an American yeah, soldier? He was, he was a soldier, and they were, we were setting up an ambush. They were, they had been setting up an ambush someplace around that far base. And it, it was, it was a hot far base. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were, the radio quit working. Well, so they couldn't tell you, hey, we're coming back in. No, they couldn't do it. That's why he was trying to get back in there before daylight. Because the yeah. guys back there on the bunkers or whatever they were on, they far you up too. You know, there's a lot of friendly kills over there. Yeah. You know, and uh, so that was the one. And then the other one, uh, they would use kids sometimes. It was not unusual to use kids as what we would call terrorists today, and they'd blow themselves up stuff. And we were, again, moving up north, and we stopped this other place, and we got put on a detail. And uh, so I'm in the back, I'm being a sergeant, I'm, I'm in this truck. I'm in, and they, I was in the back, and man, all these kids come running up there, and I mean, right there, and I'm, you know, I put mine on the rock and roll and on automatic, and I was getting ready to take this girl out, and, and uh, she couldn't have been more than, ooh, uh, let's go 10 years old, 12 at the most. I can't imagine what I'd have done nowadays if I knew what I'd done now. And a lot of guys had, had done that. Uh, war, war's not what it's cracked up to be. I don't care what they say. I mean, um, we got to have a military, and I guess we got to fight wars. I guess there always will be. But So what made you not shoot her, the little girl? She, I got my eyes on several 
kids were coming up, and they're just they ran up in the street and they were in this truck, this small truck. It wasn't a Deutschman half. It was a smaller truck, and they're right there. And I had never experienced that. I had not. So it's probably more Jordan out of just not knowing. You 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 know there keep all kinds of booby traps through the years. You know, mess halls. A guy have a mess hall and he pull a tray out. You know or a lot back in the rear or some places, evidently they'd have, well, they'd pick up a football guy, you'd be throwing football or something, pick it up, and they'd detonate it or something like that, you know. So when these kids come up there, that's where my mind, you know, you're, you're first thinking, you know, you're thinking survival, you know, you're, it gets back to that, you know, and, and you go into a mindset uh, when you, I don't know about, I can't speak for a chopper, like you ask a question. Charper guys were different, okay? They were different. I mean, they got they got warred too. They had to. Well, infantry guys, when it was time to deal, they, they were different. They, yeah. were, they were different. And I'd see it. I, I worked myself into supply for a couple of months, and so I was pretty tight with those guys, and they'd get ready to go in out the field, and it was just boom. They turn, started turning mean, respectful but mean. And, and it was, it'd be like a street cop versus a cop that's not on the street anymore, but what, what one time was. Police officers think different, and they fall back on their training. And, and I'm, I'm against a lot of the stuff that's going on with the, what's going on nowadays, these racial problems. But these cops are falling back on their training, too. And that's what we were told in the military. Go to your training. And, and you don't think, you just go do it. So when these cops do these things, now that guy putting his knee on 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 him, that's not. If it's in your training, they need to get the, the hell out of there. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Because I don't know what's in their training, but there's a lot of things that they're they're just following on training. And I, hey, if I'm following my training, and then you're sending me to prison or something, I got a problem with that. Yeah. Change the training. Yeah. You know now, street cops are different thinkers, and uh, they just don't. So I'm mean, getting a little bit off subject, but the mindset, I tell the, those infantry guys, I, I dealt with some lurks. And, uh, what is a lurk? A long-range patrol, and they were in my company. And, uh, uh, and what would classify long-range? Like how, how far are we talking? Well, the stuff I remember, they operated in five, six, seven-man teams. And their job was basically to go out and find out what was going on. They would engage, but they weren't big enough to engage, but they would engage if they had to. They'd try to, and, uh, you know, uh, there were some interesting guys I met over there. I met an assassin who worked for the CIA. I met a sniper. He was in our company. They'd drop him out by himself, and he sniped. And he was from Washington, D.C. And then the CIA guy, he got, I don't know how, I think the weather changed real bad, and we get these guys, and got talking with him, and he said, I'm an assassin. I said, assassin? He said, yeah. He said, I, I work for the CIA. I said, well, how does that work? And he said, well, we know what, they're, they go in the villages, and he would dress like the D.C., and yeah, I can't remember what that hat's called. What's a hat called? It's like a rice hat. Yeah, the, and then he'd have, he carries AK, 
and you walk in, you say, what happens? You know where they're at. You go in, you kill them, and it's confusion. He said, you just walk out. I said, man, I don't know if I can do that. He said, that ain't good. I said, no, I don't think I could. Do, do, do those rice hats bother you? What? Do the, the side of those rice hats, do, do they bother you? Yeah, oh, not really, no. Okay. But, uh, yeah, there was a, the, the there Asian a has a different look. Papa saw him. He's got that long beard. And yeah, and the, yeah. And the, we were guarding a chopper pad one time, and it was easy duty to they just find us something to do. You know, we chopped wood good for a week or two. And then the, when the sun would come up, we're right in front of rice paddies. And there's this papa son walking around with an ox. Hell, we knew that dude was VC. He was <laughs> he was telling them how many choppers come in and how many troops are going yeah. out. Well, you know he was, you know. Why would he even be there by their chopper pad, you know? Yeah. <laughs> did did they kill him? No. No, because, nah, you know, he never done anything. He didn't. You know, he didn't have any weapons, you yeah. know, but he just, angry, and he was working, you know, he had the peasants, you know. Yeah. You know, they've been seeing war for 2,000 years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, it's like in their culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like growing up, it's like kind of yeah. like this COVID, you know, you just do it, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, like, we're, we're definitely going to have to do a part two to this, because, like, there's, we're an hour and ten minutes into it, and try to keep the... <laughs> Every time we say, we're like, we're going to just stick to 25 to 30 minutes, and then our episode ends up being an hour. Because but everything we talk about, like, it's, like, a lot. Yeah. It, it, it can't be discussed in 25 minutes. Yeah, that's yeah, true. If you do it right on any discussion, it's what it is, a discussion. You have to find out. I'm not saying all my opinions are right, but I am saying that most of them are very close to being right. Well, and that's what, like, because I, I wanted to get in, you know, we were talking about errancy of the Bible and the evangelical, and, and I'd like to talk about the evangelical, right? But also, like, obviously at another time, but also I wanted to talk about how your experiences shaped, and that's what I kind of hit on there for a second about. My experiences, how they, how they were shaped? Well, how they shaped your beliefs, and, and we can't talk about this now because, like, I don't want to gloss over it. Because, like, I have a different experience growing up than even, like, my siblings did. You know, like, you being closer to the war. And that was, like, so one more, like, and we'll do this part two, but one more question, though. And then we'll, we'll have to stop this. So, you growing up with both of your parents were in the Army. Yeah. And, obviously, Grandpappy saw a lot of action. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some very, very terrible stuff at a very young age. With him growing up, looking back, do you, you know, because back then there was no PTSD. There was nothing like well, that. Classified. They call Classified. it, uh, they well, call they it shell, call shock? shell shock? Shell shock, yeah. yeah. And, and then later something, uh, battle th- World War Two guys were battle fatigue. Shell battle shock fatigue. were World War One guys. So looking back, though, growing up when he was just in the home, was there anything that he was doing that you go, now you go, well, like that was obviously a reaction. And I know like the alcohol, <laughs> like, you know. Well, all right, let's, let's try to keep it short. Okay. We could talk about that forever. Now, you know Grandpappy. Yeah, yeah. He was, and lots of people say about their grandfather, he's a one of a kind. But my dad was absolutely one of a kind. Yeah, yeah. And, um. So how did it affect him? He was a hard worker. 
He was a hard drinker. He done things he probably wasn't, shouldn't be proud of. Um, you, as you got to know some of the stuff that he experienced, you go, well, hell, no wonder. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But those feelings sometimes he come out and he would, well, you know, his infidelity was not all that great. You know. Yeah. And that was a problem. And those World War II guys were like that. A lot of them, not all of them. But he was also a guy that you learned he didn't like liars and he didn't like thieves. He'd always say that. You know, say, you don't want a liar and a thief. Now, everybody lies a little bit here and there and so on. But I know what he's talking about, Princeton. Yeah. Um, his anger, he, he seemed to, from time to time to be more depressed. And he would, he would drink a little bit more. His drinking was, you know, he was a whiskey drinker. He wasn't in that beer stuff. You know, I told you about those boys from Kentucky in my time. My pat, young uncle, and a couple of cousins started drinking beer. But hell, all those people drank moonshine and whiskeys. They were, it was Kentucky bourbon stuff. Yeah. So you go somewhere uh, at a relative's house, say they're working on it. Back then, you could work on cars or whatever, and everybody would break out their whiskeys. You yeah. know, and then just nurse on they or every now and then they wanted to get drunk, start falling down. Most of the time, they just nursed on it, you know, and get that. And they, I drank some moonshine. I never liked it. Dad always said, true moonshine, you won't taste it. And then it does you, puts it on you. I, I tasted some, and, and uh, it must have not been good because <laughs> I tasted it. I didn't drink it anymore. <laughs> I've had a few. Uh, the best stuff I've had was that stuff Brian would get when he was in when he lived in Georgia. Yeah. You know? That yeah. stuff is uh no joke though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that was a lot, you know, I, I can imagine alcohol being that medicinal factor in the hills and in the mountains, you know. Yeah. At the time. Yeah, I think that that well, I don't know what is going on down there now cuz I haven't been down there for 9 years by I, I and that's I've never done that before in my life. I was always down there once, twice, three times a year for for the most part. But uh, I know that uh, it's a depressed area. Uh, there's no rail in there. Yeah. Their economy, at least 20 years ago, they the law was looking the other way and letting the marijuana boys help the economy out. Yeah. And a lot of those marijuana boys, we'd see them come out. And I think you were with me, son. They come out, man. You thought they were pushing moonshine, long yeah. beards and things, yeah. but they were. They were and, and, and rightfully so. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. let them grow their, their weed. Well, they, it was helping the economy. And there yeah. Was, uh, there's not a lot of it, beautiful state or, or county, beautiful town, be beautiful county. But, for, yeah, there's some work in there. But for the most part, you're leaving and yeah. finding your work. Yeah. And, and they want to come back to Trimmer County because of the beauty of it. Great place to fish, great place to hunt, things like that. Yeah. And, and really, southeastern Ohio, they turned that into a county of fishing. And, you know, they went through out of the coal mines in southeastern Ohio, and they went to the junkyards last salvage. Yeah. And then I think at least Noble County appears, uh, they went to a lot of, they had lakes in there, so they, they made the roads real nice. And so looks like Cumberland County. You can go down there and fish in Del Hollow or down there in southwestern, southeastern Ohio. And, uh, 
you know, but there are businesses, you know, it's yeah. not like there's, you know, a hospital in Burksville, very small one, you know, but they're there. Yeah, how many, Burksville has like what, 10,000 people Ooh, in no, the county? No. The county is is one of the smallest counties. That the, the county itself, I looked this up, the Cumberland County, at its heyday was in the 60s, and there was only 20,000 people in the county. Wow. And it's nothing like that now. It, it, yeah. you know, I can't, so I, I have to Google that to see if they've grown any. Well, man, here's or, here's the good thing about technology. I'm just going to Google it right now. Then I'll well, Google, cool, yeah. And uh, it's, uh, I still, or you and I still have blood that live down there. There's not a lot of it, but they're uh, it's second so, and third cousins, although we do have <laughs> two first cousins. <laughs> Burksville. <laughs> yeah. 2018 census, Burksville has 1,468 yeah. people. And you know a lot of people know this, but one of the first constables in that area now was Abe Lincoln's dad. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. And, of course, you know, they moved on into Kentucky up. Yeah, Hopkinsville or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. Went from what, Kentucky to Indiana to over to Illinois. Illinois, yeah, yeah. Well, we should go ahead and end this because we're hour and seventeen. We could go on for hours, but definitely we'll have to do a part two sometime in the near future uh, when schedules permit. And that was the main thing you're thinking of. How did my perceptions and yeah, you know, ideas dealing with. Christianity? Well, just like your beliefs and just who you are, even outside of like the the afterlife, but just who you are as an individual. Because, and I want to get into it because I, I want to talk about how those influence me growing up and the difference from a lot of mm-hmm. people that I was around, like other friends yeah, and how their know. family. Because you weren't, you were never a religious person, to me. Not a, you know, my mom, and dad wasn't religious to me, and they both were raised in church. Yeah. And uh, so I kind of raised it. I, you know, I well, we'll talk about it later when I started turning. Because I struggle with religion, you know. Religion and, and uh, beliefs and things, yeah, they're the same, but they really are not the same. Yeah. You know that. I yeah. Mean, uh, there are certain ways to believe, and and don't get me wrong, there is farm brimstone that a person needs that. Yeah. You know, you've heard me say this a lot of times, and I'll close with this, not just religion, but anything. It's not so much what we do, but how we do it. Yeah. You can lose the message. Yeah. Because it's how you did it. And uh, it's it's hard sometimes to do things, do it right, or do it correctly, but if we would try to do that more, we would be used to what's what's that old statement? The the truth will set you free, but it'll first make you miserable as hell. Mm-hmm. If we would do that more, the misery would would be we could handle it better. Yeah. You know, and so well that's another story. Okay. Okay, well Jordan had to leave the room, so I'm gonna close it out. So thank you for listening to the fourteenth episode. Be sure to hit us up at the Pastor and the Witch Podcast at gmail.com. Check out our Facebook page or website, which is not being very, it's not functioning properly right now because of the fascist bastards at Squarespace, but it's the Pastor and the Witch.com. Thanks for listening.